beautiful and joyous hymns, and even as we have the fellow opportunity of fellowship, might we perhaps for a moment reflect upon the goodness that we've each enjoyed this past week, that week now closed. We are beginning a new week today, this first day. And as God has commanded in His Word, a day to come together to celebrate all the goodness, especially through Christ, the recognition of that day in which we surround the table, give as we've been prospered. It's certainly good for us to be here. This is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118, verse 24. For the next few moments this morning, might I ask you to think with me about a subject that I have on the screen on the wall to, to my left. The very character of the second coming of Jesus. Isn't it a truly and a remarkable thing to consider that that topic is one that immediately evokes many feelings, many thoughts, many characteristics, and what's more, there are many differences of opinion and differences of viewpoint toward it. All the while, our goal, of course, is to allow God's Word to speak to us about that grand and remarkable subject. And over the next few moments today, let us, in fact, do that together. By way of introduction, I would ask that you ponder some of the following perhaps obvious thoughts with me. You and I live in a world in which we readily appreciate the nature of the uncertainties concerning it. None of us, for instance, know exactly what our health will be like a week from today. Might you and I, in fact, be stricken with something that's not pleasant? We hope that isn't the case, but we do not know that for sure. Or maybe in regard to some distant event like, for instance, what will our career be like? Maybe as a young person, a young boy or girl, you think about that. What ultimate career profession will I have? You may not at this time know what that ultimately will be. You see, we are surrounded by uncertainties. We perhaps come to recognize the basic character of that as we grow and mature, but it does not set aside the fact. It's also true that we are beset with not a few disappointments. Have you ever had a cherished friend who ultimately makes some choice, some decision that hurts you terribly? You see, what once was a friend has become a traitor. What perhaps once was a cherished and trusted friend has become one who no longer occupies that same respected position. And in fact, speaking of that latter, have you and I ever observed the instance of whereby perhaps some person occupied a respected position either in government, maybe even in religion, and who ultimately is found to engage in things that are not only unwholesome but are just downright shameful, and thus our confidence is destroyed? That person whom we so highly respected, we simply can't respect as much again. You and I know that both disappointments and uncertainties come our way. But as I note at the bottom of that screen, Jesus Christ is one who can always be trusted. He is in fact the best of friends you and I would ever have in any respectful place. He in fact is that one who is the safeguarder of our soul. He is trustworthy in all matters. Come unto me, all you that labored are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall have rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That text in Matthew 11, 28-30, helps us recall the precious means by which the Savior draws us and calls us. But not only is He one who then can help us face the uncertainties in our life, 
He is also one who certainly will never disappoint. Never let us down. Never behave or conduct himself in such a way that will destroy our confidence in him. All that being said as an introduction, let me ask you to apply those thoughts with me concerning the Savior's second coming. Yes, indeed, the Savior's second coming. I believe you'll see how that will develop, and as you begin that with me, let us first focus just a moment on his first coming. What was the basic nature and character of it? And it will lead us directly into asking some questions about the second coming. We will understand both the Bible and secular history testify that there was a man who walked this earth about 20 centuries ago. His name was Jesus. The Bible speaks so beautifully and powerfully about the character of his coming. It was prophesied from days of old. He came at the right time, Galatians 4 verse 4. And as he entered the world, he came to do the will of the Father. We read in texts such as John 6 verse 38, Jesus himself speaking said, I came not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Those were the words of our Savior. Two chapters earlier in John 4 verse 36, he had therein made the statement, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. Jesus had a powerful desire, purpose and will to accomplish the will of the great almighty God of heaven and that purpose included his going to the cross and to give his life a ransom for many. In fact, in Luke 24, after his resurrection, Jesus speaking to those assembled apostles said, Thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Thus, in the name of Christ, redemption and salvation are to be preached among all nations. Though the beginning point was Jerusalem, you and I in Putnam County, Tennessee, enjoy that benefit now 2,000 years later. What a joyous and grand benefit from the God of heaven. The Lord came once. He walked upon this earth in the flesh. As we recognize the very powerful thought of that, notice... Paul could tell the, the first, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Corinthian brethren, he said, The gospel that was preached unto you consists of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And in fact, if you hold steadfastly to it, you'll not fall. The powerful character and nature of that first coming benefits all of humanity who then have the opportunity to in fact have their sin-sick soul washed from those sins and enjoy the blessed goodness of the blood of Jesus. Thoughts, in fact, fill our mind as we think about those benefits. The New Testament writers speak of them in so very many ways. The first gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2, what subject did Peter and the others preach? Peter stood up with boldness and courageousness and he very plainly told them, you have put to death with your own wicked and cruel hands, the Son of God. These were cut to the heart. But in that same message, he had pointed out to him the fact that death couldn't hold him, but rather up from the grave he arose. Four verses later, he said that spiritual kingdom of Israel, this one whom you crucified has been resurrected to reign. When he closed the sermon, he said, Therefore, in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. Thus, being cut to the heart, they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? 
They had put to death the very one God sent to save them. About 3,000 responded amazingly and exactly to what Peter commanded when he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Jesus came once. There's no question about that. As I mentioned earlier, there are even books you and I can go look at in the library. They're not inspired books of the Bible. and They will tell you about a man named Jesus who walked this earth. There's no question he came. But just as certainly as he came, we notice that after his resurrection, after he came back from the grave, not many days later, he ascended back to heaven. The text that was read in our hearing a moment ago from Acts 1 tells about when those apostles came to Mount Olivet. And there, as Jesus spoke with them, he began to rise up from the earth and the clouds concealed him ultimately. And thus, he left their presence, ascended back to the Father. At that point, we realize that in the flesh, he no longer was here upon the earth anymore. However, we so easily recall that the Bible tells us he's coming back. And therein lies the subject of our, of our message today. You and I now live some 20 centuries later. He hasn't come yet, apparently. Should we then think that it, since it's been so long that it's no point in thinking He will come? You see, that has been a fatal mistake of many throughout the ages. There are those who scoff at His coming. They say it's been so long. Well, maybe He really wasn't meaning He'd come back. Maybe that really wasn't the message he intended to give. Maybe we should remember that in 2 Peter 3, Peter warned us that there would be those who would scoff at his coming. Peter said, knowing this first, that in the last days there shall come scoffers, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the days that the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. Peter lived in the first century and he even then said there's going to be those who will scoff at his coming because it perhaps isn't when men think it ought to be. That maybe reminds us of those words of the wise preacher in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9 when he said, The thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is is that which will continue. All things continue as they were of all things under the sun. You and I can begin to believe that since one generation passes and gives way to another and all things seem to never be changing, that, well, maybe it's never going to change. Maybe the Lord really never will come back. If we think that way, we are sorely mistaken and we are in grave error. For the Bible over and over again testifies that not only did Jesus come that time He was here in the flesh, as we've already noted, but he will absolutely come back again. Let us devote the remainder of our subject time today to think maybe about the character of that second coming. What does the Bible teach about it? What things may be important for us to embed in our mind so that we are readily capable of discussing, thinking about the nature of the second coming? Mine, I submit to you that there are some troubling statistics relative to this very thought. Some of these that I've placed on the screen to my left may be quite a bit unsettling. In 1941, when a survey was taken about of those who were in various denominational preachers, somewhat remarkably, 27% of them, 27% of those who responded did not believe that the Lord would come back. They did not believe in the second coming of Jesus. 
But 20 years later, the number is almost unbelievable. 20 years later, 1961, when a survey was made of students in seminaries, that is, those who would ultimately leave that and become those that would preach to masses around our land, 99% of them had doubts about the second coming of Christ. 99% of them had doubts. Somewhat more recently, 1977, of those young men who would leave their respective seminary positions and seminary locations and begin to preach in various places, 92% of them, 92% had a measure of doubt concerning the nature of the second coming and in fact in most instances even directly denied that it would ever happen. Now, to be sure, those numbers are not respectful of purely Church of Christ doctrine, I understand. They aren't respectful of the teaching in the New Testament, but nonetheless, it's troubling to think that there are those who are influential in the minds of so many in our land and around our world who do not believe in the second coming of Christ. Maybe in light of that thought, you and I should appreciate the simple fact that unless a person is convinced of the second coming, Unless a person believes fully in it, he or she will never be convinced of at least three other vitally important biblical doctrines. It will be nearly impossible to convince a person who doesn't believe in Je that Jesus is coming back that there will ever be a general resurrection. For when would it ever occur? Furthermore, it will be nearly impossible to convince someone of the vitality of the day of judgment if they never believe Jesus is coming back. Thirdly, it will be difficult indeed to convince them of the eternality of both heaven and hell if they do not believe that Jesus is coming back. You see, the second coming of Christ is a fundamental New Testament doctrine. And it's one that undergirds many of the other things that we read about, such as the reality of the day of judgment, the reality of an eternal hell or an eternal heaven, the reality, in fact, of the general resurrection when all that are in the grave shall come forth. John 5, verses 28 and 29. And thus, we need to be thoroughly convinced in our mind of the powerful nature of the Lord's second coming. As we've looked at these statistics, might we also observe that in them, not only are the troubling, but we even see that many who may not directly deny it perhaps live in such a way that they seem to have no interest in it. They seem not to realize that each day is a gift from God and the Lord could return at any time. That'll be one of the things we'll need to let the Bible help us better understand. But might we at this point notice some other features about the second coming? If you would, turn your attention to these given points with me. Our goal is to let the Scriptures be our guide. What does the Bible say? Why can we be so forceful in believing in the second coming of Jesus? After all, he ascended from this old sin-sick world and went back to his pure and innocent home in heaven. Why would he ever want to come back? Well, if, we, if you and I were left to ourselves, we maybe couldn't give a good answer to that, but the Bible gives a great answer to it. Not only does it tell us for certain he will come back, it tells us why. He's going to come back to close the affairs of time, and that's when that general resurrection will occur. That's when following the day of judgment will happen. And that's when eternity in heaven or hell will soon thereafter be our lot. That's why it will be so difficult to help others understand them if they never believe in the second coming of our Savior.
to think about the very character of that, listen to the words of Jesus. In John 14, beginning in verse 1, this was on the very night, Thursday evening, prior to his crucifixion. The hearts of his apostles were very, very heavy. In fact, so heavy that the Lord perceived in their mind the very character of being disturbed. In the nature of their being upset, he very calmly and with great hope and promise simply said this, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And thus to those apostles, the Lord promised he would come back. Just as certainly as I go, he said, I'm coming back. Just as certainly as I'm preparing mansions, rooms for you, I'll come back and receive you so you can inhabit them. I'm coming back. As Jesus made that resounding statement, can we each imagine the comfort that must have brought to their minds in the days that followed? As the next morning they'd see their Savior hanging on a tree when maybe, especially after they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they could remember. He said, He's coming back. And where He is, there we can be too. He's coming back. But yet, not only did Jesus make that statement, Listen to how some of the other inspired New Testament writers make reference to the same, the second coming, namely, of our Savior. As Paul wrote to those Thessalonian brethren in 1 Thessalonians 4, to them they too had great troublings in their mind about the reality of the second coming. In fact, the issue that so troubled them was the when of it. Not so much the fact it would occur, but to them in verse 16 Paul said, The Lord himself shall descend with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and with a great shout, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Thus Paul, in very clear and definitive language, he didn't say he may come back or he possibly could. He said he shall descend from heaven. The Lord is coming back. Paul wanted the Thessalonians to be comforted by that fact. For two verses later, in verse 18, he said, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Not only to them, but to his young son in the faith named Titus. In Titus 2, verse 13, Paul, writing to him, said, Looking into Jesus. Notice, as he describes him, he quickly says, Looking unto him who shall return, who shall come back, who shall in fact be the very one to whom we've placed our hope and courageousness. Titus needed to be aware of the fact that the Lord would return. He indeed is that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior. All of these things challenge us to realize many of the New Testament writers, the inspired Jesus, here we've seen Paul, consider a statement in fact made also by John. In 1 John 3 verse 2, a very brief text, but nonetheless one in which John says, We shall be like him when we shall see him. He's coming back. John quickly admits that there may be many questions about that that we'd like to ask, like what especially will be our body like? He says, this much we know for certain. When he comes, we will be like him. There was no doubt in John's mind. He didn't say if he comes. He said when he comes. In Revelation 1, verse 7, this same writer, namely John, said, Behold, every eye shall see him. 
even those that pierced him, when he cometh with clouds, he's coming back. These texts then place up in our mind the reality of the second coming. Of that there is no doubt. But perhaps the text that we chose as our lesson for today, the one that was read in our hearing a bit earlier, in Acts chapter 1, let us return in our mind to the scene when the Lord ascended to heaven. In Acts 1, verses 9, 10, and 11, we notice that the apostles were there gathering Mount Olivet. Jesus had been resurrected, of course, and for 40 days he had shared with them and proved to them that he was the resurrected Savior. He had taught them. He had instructed them. As he had met with them, he had challenged them with some of the greatest doctrines of the kingdom. However, as they were gathered, we read both in Luke 24:51 and Act 1, 9 through 11, that it, while he was speaking, he rose up and ascended out of their sight into the clouds. And on that same occasion, two men in white apparel stood nearby. Angels, if you will, appeared on that occasion. And what did they say? Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? For this same Jesus that ye have seen go into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. What plainer language could there be? Heavenly messengers directly affirming that he's coming back in precisely a similar fashion that ye have seen him go. No wonder then that text we just noted in Revelation 1 seems so appropriate. Behold, he cometh with clouds, he ascended with clouds, and they said he's coming back the same way he left. He's coming back with clouds as well. The certainty of the second coming cannot be doubted. The absolute character of it cannot be questioned. In fact, were you aware of the fact that on average one verse out of every 25 in the New Testament testify the Lord's second coming. One verse, on average, out of every 25, prophesies, foretells, speaks directly that Jesus is coming back. These texts simply are so powerful that we can't misunderstand them. And they testify that though men may doubt, though men may question, though some may scoff, you and I as believers in the Word of God never shall. For just as certainly as the Lord said it, it's going to happen. Jesus is returning. As you and I have made these statements, though, that almost immediately raises the question, we know it has been now 20 centuries. That's a long time, I understand. Do we have any indication of when it will be? Do we have any idea about the setting, the date, the time? Let us look for the latter part of our lesson at perhaps that idea, since that's the question that does occur to, to so very many. When will Jesus return? What about December 15th, 2006? It could be. That's this week, isn't it? Could it well be then perhaps the 31st of July, the year 2427? It could be. That's obviously some number of years from now and none of us will be here in the flesh to appreciate that if it happens that day. On the other hand, might it be the 29th of February, the year 800? 64,716. You can well imagine, I simply chose some dates for your thinking and for mine. And notice, in a very amazing way, I put question marks after each one of them, simply because I ask, I do not know, and neither do you. 
You see, one of the things that we can just as certainly understand about the second coming is this. It will happen. Of that, there's no, of that there is no doubt. But notice, we do not know when. No one does. And I thought that would be an appropriate way for us to think about the way this lesson closes. There have been some, however, through the years who have taken a different approach. There have been those who have had the audacity to predict or to foretell or to state the time of the Lord's second coming. I mentioned earlier the difficulties of beliefs of the Thessalonians. The books of First and Second Thessalonians, in fact, deal with this very subject. They were under the impression that Jesus' coming would be immediate. They thought it would be any day, literally. And thus that led to great problems. Many of them were stopping their jobs. They weren't working because they thought it was useless. They thought Jesus would return that quickly. Paul wrote to them to correct that misunderstanding. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, he especially said there are some things that must transpire before the Lord will come. Now, in saying that, let's quickly note all of those things have long since now happened. They've happened, in fact, by well over now, 17 or 18 centuries. But notice some others far more recent who have also been of great courageousness. In the 1840s, there was a gentleman named William Miller. He, in a very bold way, predicted that in 1843 Jesus would return. He seemed certain of it. And in fact, those who were his followers believed him. They proceeded to make ready and make preparation. Many of them, in fact, would climb trees and sit on tops of hills thinking that they'd be the first to see the return Jesus. The fall of 1843 came and went, and there was no return. However, they apparently still believed him, for he claimed he made a mistake. He miscalculated, and thus he said one year later, in 1844, he will return. Again, many believed him. But one more time... The date that he said came and went, and there was no Jesus. No return, no second coming. On that occasion, many of them, it would seem, did learn they didn't trust him much anymore after that, and his movement more or less collapsed. But notice, much later, there was that movement in which you and I still recognize today. The founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses named Charles Taze Russell very boldly and powerfully predicted in 1914 Jesus is coming back. In fact, many of that cult still believe that. If you've ever had opportunity to discuss with them, they, on many instances, will tell you Jesus came back in 1914. It's difficult to make them understand what was so special about that year other than that World War I began. Did Jesus ever say he'd come back and start a world war? You see, though many of them have come to believe and understand that that didn't happen, they quickly revised it. Some say in 1975 he came. Hal Lindsey even stated that at least about 1988, Jesus would come back. He stated that in a very popular book, and in fact his statement was based on the fact that 1988 is exactly 40 years after 1948, and that was the year that the nation of Israel was established. All of these things, though, we note that in every one of those dates that have now come and gone, Jesus didn't come back. Every one of them are now parts of history, and the Lord didn't come. 
when the year 2000 was about to come upon us, say 1999, do you remember the hubbub that was surrounding the world? The anxiety, many thought that things would collapse, Jesus would come back and inaugurate a reign. It didn't happen. You see, we begin to see that time and again, those men who have predicted, who have stated that they know when Jesus is coming back, they've all been wrong every single time. Well, perhaps we shouldn't be too shocked at that when we allow the Bible to speak to us on this subject. You see, it isn't surprising that they were all wrong because the Bible gives us more information. I'd ask that you turn with me and look at some of these texts about the when of Jesus' second coming. And especially note this with me. There are no signs of the Lord's second coming. Not one. There are no matters, no issues, no instances whereby indicators of the second coming are given. We know that because the Bible says so. We understand that because the Scriptures reveal that. In fact, I've listed a few texts for our consideration. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse number 2, Again, to those Thessalonian brethren who thought that the Lord would soon return, he said, but the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Thieves don't write ahead and leave you messages about when they're coming. A thief doesn't inform you I'll be over at 9 o'clock Friday night. The Lord will come as a thief in the night. Peter also would say in 2 Peter 3 verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works there, that are therein shall be burned up. We notice then that in that very idea, it would appear that surprise is the idea. Nobody knows and can predict by way of signs when the second coming will be. But notice also, in Matthew 24, verses 36 and 42, Jesus himself expressly states the same thing. There, in perhaps what is the most misunderstood single chapter in the Bible, Jesus states in those two texts that no man, neither the angels that are in heaven, know the day nor the time of the second coming. Now that's the Son of God talking. That's Jesus in his marvelous way of revealing the truth of heaven on the subject. No man knows. In fact, at this point, it might not be inappropriate to notice that there are many signs given in the first part of Matthew 24. And today, probably the overwhelming majority of those in the denominational world will say that those signs speak to the second coming. Dear friend, they are wrong. They are seriously in error. Those signs are not talking about the second coming. They point to the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus said so in Matthew 24, 36. All we must do is allow him in verses 34 to 36 inform us as to what he was talking about. Thus, what else may we say? Not only does no man know, not only do the angels not know, but while on earth even Jesus didn't know. He stated in Mark 13, 32, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, neither the angels, neither the Son, but the Father only. While in the flesh even the Lord didn't know the timing. Isn't it then an amazing thing that men think they've got it figured out when even Jesus didn't know? Isn't that somewhat humorous that men think they have figured it out when even the Savior, the Creator of the universe, didn't know? Colossians 1, 16. 
the very fact is that with regard to the second coming, none of us know. Your guess is as good as mine, and my guess is as good as yours. The thought is, though, that rather than to dwell in the attention on trying to figure out the date, let us observe that that's a futile effort, for we cannot figure that date out. Nowhere does the Bible give any idea by way of calculation when that could be figured out. Not too many years back, a book was written in which a gentleman claimed to use the last six books of Daniel and by some rather sophisticated calculations figure out the date of the second coming. You and I can know immediately that that was quite a bit of nonsense. It is not possible to use any book in the Bible or any combination to figure out when Jesus is coming back. In fact, Jesus, while on earth, if he couldn't know, and he knew the Scriptures better than anyone, if it had been in the book of Daniel, could not Jesus have figured that out? Wouldn't the Lord have known it? Sure he would. Not only does the Old Testament not reveal it, neither does the New. Rather than focus effort and attention on trying to figure out the date, Jesus very quickly told us that what's most important is not that because you can't figure that out. What's important is to always be ready. Jesus said, Watch therefore. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. The important point is to be ready whenever that day is. Be it tomorrow or be it the time when in fact you and I may die first. Still, the important thing is to be ready. Always every moment of every day. Jesus' statement then about being ready challenges us in Matthew 25, 13 to recognize that that was the point of that parable of the five wise and five foolish virgins. The five that were wise were always ready. The five that were foolish were not. And perhaps that brings us to the conclusion of our lesson today. In terms of the second coming, there's no doubt that it will happen. It's an absolute certainty one verse in every 25 on average foretell, make statements about it. But just as certainly as we know it's coming, we do not know when. And thus the important point is to always be ready, day by day and moment by moment. That's in fact characteristic of Paul, wasn't it? Near the close of his own life, not knowing which fleeting moment may be his last, he could say, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6-8. through 8. Today, what about your life and mine? Are you ready for the second coming, be it this afternoon, or perhaps be it a thousand years from now? We must be ready, always prepared and watchful, ready to in fact receive the Savior when He comes. Perhaps in future lessons we'll talk more about what will happen after the Lord returns. But today, for my consideration and yours, let us realize that Jesus is coming back. If you are not a Christian today, understand He's coming back to receive His own unto Himself, wherein they shall be able to enjoy eternity in those mansions with Him. Is your name written, if you will, on one of the doors of that mansion? Have you made reservations in that great mansion of heaven? If you had made reservations, today's the day to make them. Jesus said, you must believe upon me. You must repent of your sins. You must confess my name as the Son of God. And you must be immersed in water, baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. If today you haven't done that, why not today? 
Why not, in fact, make ready for the second coming? If you have done that, though, but haven't been watchful, you've become careless. You've become spiritually careless. Come back to your first love today. We'd be happy and honored to aid you in any way that we can. If we could be of assistance now, won't you come even while together we stand and while we sing?